And we're back as episode 49 continues as Two Twins in an Album looks at disc two of The Beatles. Not the White Album, but The Beatles. And here's Toph to take you through the second half. Let's do this. Yeah, on. Wasn't that, uh, wasn't that rerun on what's happening? Or maybe, maybe all of them said, hey, 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 hey. I think that was Shirley, wasn't it? I think maybe they all said it. Like it was kind of the, the thing to say when you like entered the house or the, uh, or, or Shirley's diner. It was, hey, hey, hey. Well, that could have been. I don't, I can't see Raj saying. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, Raj wasn't really much of a hey, hey, hey guy. I think that Dwayne and Rerun, that was their kind of go-to thing. Yeah, and maybe Shirley. By the way, Fred Berry, amazing dancer. Like, amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he had moves <laughs> like most, you know, we're not capable of. Yeah, I, I don't know with that nimbleness how he wasn't like a starting left tackle, you know, in the NFL. I mean, my goodness. I've already broken uh, the rule that I had set for myself at the beginning of this episode because I was, I was only going to respond throughout the duration with number 49, number 49. Yeah. I'm going to reiterate my thanks to you for sticking me with the second to last track on this one. So thanks again for that. Number 49. Have fun with this. Hey, you know what? Uh, so far, it's worked out okay because use your illusion. I think I got the better half of that one. And the White Album, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard, hard argument to say that uh, numeral dos is superior to numero uno. But hey, we'll go through it and see, right? Speaking of offensive linemen uh, in, in the aforementioned uh, Fred Rerun Barry. The offensive linemen of the Beatles, and of course, this is part two of the White Album, part, part duh of duh. The, the, the offensive linemen, I think, of the Beatles clearly was Ringo. And we touched on it a little bit last episode, but you know, I'd kind of mentioned that we were going to sort of dig into the Ringo thing a little bit. And I, I want to kick off side two with a little bit of you know, a little bit of love for Ringo or, or, or at the least a little bit of a drummer's take, you know, we've, we've had you, our resident drummer of the old podcast here, Nubs, uh, offer your take on a few, uh, on a few of those out there that slap the skins for a living. And, uh, would love to get your take on Ringo. Clearly a, I would say a less polarizing drummer as time has gone on and as history has gone on when you get to the place where a lot of really good renowned drummers have given Ringo his proper props. But for those that are, you know, kind of still in the mindset that anybody could have drummed for this band and they would have been as good or, 
you know, Ringo is kind of the member of the Beatles that you kind of giggle about, but give us the drummer's perspective right off the bat. I'll put you on the spot here right off the bat in part two. I would love to know your, your thoughts on Ringo. Give it to us, baby. I, I love Ringo. Like most real drummers, you know, you understand what made Ringo so great. And it's not that he did drum solos, you know, even though I, I think the drum solo in the end is, is pretty badass. But, you know, just because someone doesn't do like the Neil Peart sort of drum solo thing and have the revolving drum set and the Tommy Lee fly across the stage and all this kind of showman stuff it has nothing to do with what kind of drummer you are. I think Dave Grohl said it best when he was talking about Ringo. I think it was for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he said that Ringo was the king of feel. And there is a certain groove, a certain feel that Ringo had that was so ahead of his time. You have to remember that he's doing all of this in the mid to late 1960s. You know, John Bonham had not come along yet, and neither had most of the great drummers that uh, we now think of today. You know, who were his peers? Maybe Buddy Rich. You know, maybe, uh, I mean, you wouldn't say even the drummer from the Rolling Stones, Charlie, wasn't Charlie Watts? I mean, Charlie Watts is not a very good drummer, but Charlie Watts couldn't do what Ringo did. Ringo played harder. He played with more groove. He played with more feel. And he's sort of the beginning of rock drumming. I mean, tell me who was before him that did what he did. And there, the good thing about side two of the White Album is there's a couple songs out here that really showcase Ringo. In a, in a truly outstanding and very powerful way. And, and that's pretty cool to see. So, you know, great feel, understood music, knew how to serve a song. Ringo was the man. Yeah, I forget. I don't know if it was Grohl or someone else had a great quote of saying, you know, Ringo Starr is not the best drummer in the world, but he easily was the best drummer in the world for the Beatles. And you get that a lot with a lot of musicians where, you know, they may not be the greatest of all time when, you know, sidled up next to Neil Peart. Great work, by the way, on the Peart, the Canadian pronunciation. Well done. Or, um, you know, a John Bonham or a John Theodore or, you know, somebody in that sort of same realm. But for their band and for the treatment that these songs needed and deserved, Ringo was the man. So if you're listening out there, Ringo Starr, Sure, you're, I'm sure he is, right? I mean, I've I've heard he dabbles in the podcast a little He's bit. listening with peace and love. I was just going to say, you know, with peace and love, Ringo, we tell you that we are big fans. And, uh, and I would know. say to you, I would say that side two of the White Album, or I'm sorry, disc two of the White Album, this thing's so huge, you know, you lose track. Disc two of the White Album is probably his finest hour, I would say, with the Beatles overall. Maybe Abbey Road, you can make the argument for it's one of the many reasons why. As we found out in the first part, that Abbey Road is my favorite Beatles album of all time. But I do think this particular set of songs that we're going to look at here is probably Ringo at his absolute best. And we'll talk about that quite a bit as we go. A lot of great Ringo moments. Well, listen, I'm glad, uh, you know, put you on the spot there right away. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're going to go the rest of the episode without putting you on the spot again. So, uh, you know, you can rest easy. Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> Game time, baby. I was lying. I was fibbing. We're going to put you on the spot again. What do you, you think, buddy? You fibster, you. You fibster. And, and now, here on Two Twins in an Album, 
the game that is sweeping the U.S. and the U.K., because these guys are from the U.K., so it's sweeping there, too. Which Beetle said it. Starring your host, Toph, who is kind of a doofus. And with your always steady contestant, also a doofus, probably an even bigger one, Nubs. Thanks, it's great to be here. (laughs) What do you say we play Which Beetle Said It? Huh? I like it. You ready to go? Yeah, of course. Well, you know what comes next, right? The very somber, serious music. If I can get the thing to work. There we go. It's kind of a low budget show. It's not a, I wouldn't call it a profitable um, endeavor. It's more of a cost center than it is a profit center, I would say. Okay. But we do our best, don't we? All right. Certainly do. Here's the game, Nub. <laughs> you don't have to worry about Googling this one, I don't think. <laughs> I would hope not. This would be a tough but one. But I do have my hands up. Yeah, let me see the hands just in case, but I, I trust you on this one. Okay. I, I think even you even you would have a hard time cheating on this one, and you can pretty much, you've proven you can cheat at a bunch of stuff, so. Oh, stop it. I've never cheated on any of our games. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. Questionable. All right. I got 10 quotes. They could be about the band. They could be about life. They could be about just random weird stuff. Weird, wild stuff. Weird, wild stuff. That is wild. Wild. Yes. And I <laughs> thank, thank you, Ed. And I'm going to give the quote, and you're going to try and guess which Beatle said it. Are how you ready? How many are we doing? Well, if you were paying attention, I already informed you that we're doing 10. Okay, beautiful. Okay. Now try to pay attention, okay? Especially during the instructional period. It's very important. As you take a nice large sip of your berry white claw. That would be blackberry. It is Friday, by the way. It's Friday, uh, definite happy hour time. So well done. Okay, you ready? Yes. How many do you think you should get on this one? I'd say anything about five, five or over. If you're going to take four guys and guess who said what, I'm well, you have five a, or above. You have a carry the two 25% chance on every guess, you know, so. I'm much better at like, you know, albums and uh, what year things came out. And well, you know what? You, you know. don't get to pick the game now, do exactly. you? Exactly. So that's, that's what right. I'm saying. I think five or above is kind of what I'm shooting for. Okay. Although they are four pretty distinct personalities. I mean, anything that sounds like a, kind of a raging asshole is probably John Lennon. Okay. You know? So. Well, here, listen, enough jibber jabber. Here we go. Sorry. You ready? Okay, here we go. Yeah. Here's quote number one. If you can, and I can't do a British accent, otherwise I would, but I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do an American accent. Okay. If you can play your stuff in a pub, then you're a good band. Which Beatles said it? It's a pretty simple thought. If you can play your stuff in a pub, then you're a good band. I'm going to guess that that is John Lennon. Is that your final answer now? 
It is. Of course it is. And that's incorrect. That was said by Paul McCartney. Ah, okay. Now, when you said that's a pretty simple thought, I was like, ooh, he's going to get this. Because Paul was kind of the more simple thinker, right? But that's okay. We're just warming up. Oh, for one. Oh, for one. I think you can get your five. Okay. All right. Here we go. How confident do you feel? Not very. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. If we cannot love ourselves, we cannot fully open to our ability to love others or our potential to create. Would you like me to repeat it? Nope. Okay. That sounds very George. I'm going with George Harrison. George is incorrect. That was John Lennon. Okay. You're over too, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We gotta get we gotta get you on the board here. I thought the love thing would, you know. But I guess that, they all talked about love, didn't they? Yeah, like, and that sounded more like a meditative thought, you know. Mm, so I was that's why I remember George. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. Number three. Let's get you on the board here. If everyone demanded peace instead of another television set, then there'd be peace. Which Beatles said it? That's got to be John. John is correct. You're on the board, buddy. Probably the easiest one. Not going to lie. Peace. I mean, come on. Yeah, that that's uh, yeah, that was kind of a layup, and I appreciate it. I needed it. Oh, buddy, I want to get you on the board here. Okay. You are one for three. Okay. All right, here we go. Number four. Time is a very misleading thing. All there is ever is the now. We can gain experience from the past, but we can't relive it. say I, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball I think that was Ringo I respect the guess but it's incorrect that was George ah, now I for sure thought you were going to get that because you know he's talking very cosmically right yeah all right you're one for four but I feel a run coming on I feel good <laughs> yeah, about this do you okay number five here we go let's get Uncle Mo on your side here the Beatles saved the world from boredom. Would you like me to repeat it? No. It, it's that this one's interesting because it's it's puffy enough that it was something John would say. But I could see Paul delivering it as a very matter of fact sort of idea. But there's a thing there with Ringo. I know George would never have said that. He wouldn't have. So it's not George. I'm going to go Ringo. I think he would have that observation. It was George. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's funny. All right. You're one for five. You should really get deducted two points there because you said he'd yeah. never say it. But, you know, for overconfidence. All right. One for five. One for five. Tough game. Tough game. Okay. Number six. There are only four people who knew what the Beatles were really about anyway. Ringo. Ringo is incorrect. That was Paul McCartney. Oh, man. Kind of thought you'd get that. You know, he was always kind of the one who was like, you know, hey, listen, we were the four that really, really knew the ins and outs 
all the stuff everyone else says is, you know. Did Ringo just not talk? Is that bullocks. is that what we're getting at here? Well, I mean, you know, peace and love, peace and love. Goes oh, Ringo. that was Ringo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, peace and love. All right. This is number six. Your own space, man. It's so important. That's why we were doomed, because we didn't have any. It was like monkeys in a zoo. They die. Which beetle said it? It's either Paul or Ringo. Um, see, part of me doesn't want to stray from the Ringo guess, because then if it's Ringo, I'm going to be really pissed. I'm going to say uh, monkeys in the zoo. I'm going to say Ringo. The answer is George Harrison. <laughs> I, I am so bad at this game. That's a hey, listen. This is a tough game. Okay. Number seven. You're one for six. You're in a little bit of a slump. <laughs> a little bit. I'm in quicksand. <laughs> Animation is not just for children. It's also for adults who take drugs. Which Beatles said it? Ringo. <laughs> the answer is Paul McCartney. Oh my god! You're one for seven. Keep, you know, keep getting that Ringo one. That eventually you'll get. I mean, you have to. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. All right, here we go. Okay, number eight. America has everything. Why would they want us? George. Self-aware and self-deprecating. George is correct. Proud of you, buddy. Two for eight. You got two more. Do you think you can get to... I'll tell you what. If you can get to four, that's pretty damn respectable. It'd be a good finish. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be kind of closing, wouldn't it? Okay, here's nine. If there hadn't been an Elvis, there wouldn't have been the Beatles. Which Beatles said it? Ringo. Ringo is incorrect. It was John Lennon. John Lennon was the Elvis guy. He was the Elvis guy. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. All right. One more. Let's finish strong. Okay. 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 All right. Okay. Which Beatles said it? Here we go. I want to deal with what's in front of me now to the best of my abilities. And sometimes that's not very good. But a lot of the days, it's really great. John. You picked the last question to go away from Ringo, huh? It was Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> you go Ringo all day. I give you Ringo on the last one and you and you pivot away. I just well, giving you John. I mean, come on. Do you still think I cheat on these games? Uh, I, I wish you would have cheated on that one, but uh, no. <laughs> yeah. tough game, but it, 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 it is kind of fun. I, part of the reason why uh, I thought that'd be fun to play is they did all sort of have a lot of their distinct personalities and viewpoints and catchphrases and quotes. And many of them were distinct, but obviously, you know, in a lot of ways, they were all reading from the same hymnal and going in the same direction. And 
And uh, I knew that'd be a tough game, but you, you know, you finished two out of 10. Um, it's not good. It's all at all. Just, I mean, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Just, it, that wasn't very good. My favorite uh, Ringo quote, did you ever hear the bit where he's talking about Sergeant Pepper and he goes, and we have a special man out there who makes the piano sound like a guitar. And you might say, where's the guitar? And you say, well, there's a piano, you know, <laughs> like, like the special man. He's talking about like George Martin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, man. you know, and I had to stay away from the ones I knew you'd know. Right. But, uh, all right. Well, Nubs sucked at that game, but, uh, hey, listen, I, ho- I hope that it was a good game. Uh, nonetheless, what do you say? We, we stop playing game. Let's stop playing games here and get to, to discs two. What do you think, buddy? Well, let's do it. Drop that needle, man. All right. Well, Nubs took us through disc one in part one, and I, I thought did a wonderful job. And, uh, you know, part of what was compelling about disc one was the way it kicks off. And I think we are both pretty big fans of the way that one kicked off. Let's see how we feel about this one as we start things off with, uh, I guess what became somewhat of a McCartney classic here, but a bit of a polarizing song for this band and looking forward to your take nubs on track one. You say it's your birthday. some nice licks here i think one of the things that's that's really cool and interesting and unique about birthday is it was a true paul and john collaboration you know and and there wasn't a lot of that on the white album it was pretty siloed but this was a song that both of them seemed like they were kind of having fun with obviously there's a lot of little richard influence here you know both paul and john were huge fans of little richard I like that it's kind of a, a a rare collaboration moment. It does feature both Yoko and Patty Harrison on some background vocals there. I'll tell you what John Lennon had to say about it later in his life, but first let's hear what Nubs has to say about it. So I, I'm a little bit uh, tainted in my view of this song, and I'll tell you why. And I, I think everyone has stories like this, but this song in particular. So my, let's see, the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, I came home and I was a intern for WOMC 104.3, the Dick Purton show in the morning. So I'd you know, wake up at 4 a.m. and drive to Ferndale and do this morning show. What did he call you? He had a name for you. What did he call you? It was Private Eye was my name. Oh, yes, that's right. He would say your name and then he would say Private Eye. And, and that was like your sort of intern nickname, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which was hilarious. It was an amazing experience. It taught me so much. But twice during the show, they would do birthdays of famous old musicians. And the bumper music for it was birthday. Right. And so every day at like, you know, 6 a.m. and 8 a.m., I had to hear this do, 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 it's your birthday. And I just got so sick of it. <laughs> Especially at that hour. Oh, dude, at that hour. And so every time I hear the intro and the hook, I'm just like, oh, it just reminds me of, and again, awesome experience. But when you hear the same song over and over again, twice a day for your, your whole 
duration of this internship. It was just like, oh, like never want to hear that song again. <laughs> and unfortunately, it, it takes away a bit from, you know, kind of a cool collaboration. Like you said, some of the things they're doing on this song are really interesting. The kind of piano integration and some of the things rhythmically, I do think it's one of Ringo's better moments as a drummer. You know, he's pacing the thing along with a lot of energy. So yeah, it's, it's a song that I know a lot of people like, but for me, I just got super, super burnout on it when it was uh, part of that experience. Well, I, you know, I think that uh, the collaborative, uh, you know, positive nature in that regard uh, certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't sustained by John because uh, much later in his life, uh, when he was recollecting on some uh, Beatles tracks, he, uh, he called the song birthday, um, a piece of garbage. So, um, so I guess that means, I guess that means he didn't in hindsight think too highly of it. Uh, piece, piece of garbage. So, you know, for being like a real, you know, peace and love type of guy, he sure had a sour opinion on a lot of things. He, he strikes me as like a guy who, you know, posed as a really positive person, but actually deep down was pretty negative. Are he does not have a lot of positive reflections. Are you ideas. trying to imply that John Lennon was emotionally complicated? Are you, are you really trying to say, is that what you're trying to say? I would, uh, yes, I would try and take, I would take wow. it a step further. I'd say he's, he was sort of hypocritical and, and honestly, just not a very likable guy. I mean, you know, we all like hold him up and I understand why, but I don't know when, when you hear his reflections on the Beatles, it wasn't that in, like fun to listen to. You know what I mean? It was very negative. This is a very hot take from nubs. John Lennon was emotionally complicated and at times annoying. So hot, hot take nubs, hot take. And by that, I mean, you know, I think we all agree that, uh, that guy could be pretty damn annoying. Well, let's see if we felt like his take on the blues was annoying on your blues. So a good segue here in terms of John's uh, constant struggles. Um, he wrote this song about, you know, um, being so lonely and wanting to die uh, while they were in India as part of, you know, what was supposed to be uh, a, a heavily peace and love exploration with the Maharishi. So you can tell that uh, things may have not been going to plan. If, uh, if John is kind of writing these songs about just, you know, wanting to die, but obviously there's a bit of parody here. There's a bit of tongue in cheek here, which I actually kind of like, I mean, you nubs, we've talked a lot about how the, the blues doesn't really always do it for us because it can be a little formulaic and it can be a little vague and some of those things. And, and I actually think now when you listen back he's sort of parodying this blues movement that was taking place in Britain in the late sixties and sort of mocking it lyrically and, and maybe even musically in some way, you know, it's almost um, like a satire piece on this album. Uh, kind of like, here's your blues, you know, kind of poking fun a little bit at this style and this movement for that. I actually kind of appreciate it because I think there's plenty of fun to be poked. Um, but also it's interesting that, you know, even while they were out on this retreat, you know, that John would kind of write a song like this. So I appreciate that context. I was not aware that that was sort of the deal here. I thought it was just John going back to one of his go-tos in the Beatles and 
as a <laughs> solo artist was like going back to this rockabilly bluesy deal. Right. So I just found it annoying in that way. I do like Ringo's drumming a lot. It's loose. It's big. Again, I think Ringo has just a stellar side here, but the song itself, you know, yeah, okay. Spot on the album again, shows that, that thing that's going on on the white album with every style being touched and no rules and each guy being able to do their own thing. But like John Lennon singing the blues, whether it's satirical or not, is just really not something I want to spend a ton of time with, you know, but, but I adding that in to that, that does help. That does help to kind of know what he was going for, for sure. Yeah. I, I used to, in my younger years before I became, you know, old and wise and very mature, um, which I mean, clearly I am now, I, you know, I thought the same. It was kind of like, okay, this is just an annoying John blues thing. And he actually did do that a lot later in his solo career, but he wasn't parodying. He, he wasn't mocking. He was actually being kind of serious. Um, at least from what we can tell, you can, you never know what John, but the more I've kind of realized that this was a little bit of a, um, take on something rather than it was, you know, doing something terribly serious, you know, I kind of get it and sort of think it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, musically it's, it is what it is. Um, I agree with you. It's a great Ringo moment. And you know, some of the soulful vocal stuff from John could be okay. You see that from everybody basically at, at given times during the white album. Cause they, you could tell they wanted to go for a few things that were a little bit more rugged. Um, so I think it's, it's more than just about the song. It's about kind of the, uh, the sort of satire and the parody taking place and, you know, interesting spot there for track two on disc two to get that out. And as we often see in track two, and as we see throughout the white album, we go through these kind of peaks and valleys of something that's a little bit more experimental, maybe something that's a little bit more aggressive, followed by Paul McCartney coming on and making everyone feel wonderful. And here we go with that on Mother Nature Sun track three. get a lot of this where Paul kind of steps in and calms things down. Um, this is a Paul solo song. N- none of the other members were even involved. Um, in fact, this was an example and you saw this a lot during the white album process. You know, Paul was spending a lot of time doing a lot of his songs by himself. And some of that, like on a song like this, where you've got an acoustic guitar and some string arrangements, I mean, he and George Martin could go in and knock that out. But apparently Mother Nature's Son was one of those points where John and the other two guys started getting a little irritated with Paul doing a lot of these things on his own. I, I think that a couple of these moments on the White Album for Paul are a little bit symbolic of him starting to think about what he could do on his own and what he could do in this sort of more minimalist approach where he kind of controls the song, especially for these ones that are a bit more stripped down. Blackbird is another example uh, from disc one. So. A good little Paul song, uh, which I guess you can say that a lot for McCartney's contributions here. I mean, if you told me that all of those solo Paul songs on this entire album, if you told me they weren't Beatles songs, but they were off McCartney one, you know, the 1969 or 70 album, his debut, I, I would have believed you. It all sounds like that. It sounds like it was recorded at home with a four track, except for the orchestration here. You know, when I was a younger listener, I never paid enough attention to the orchestration. It's a little bit more of a headphones 
thing to notice because it's just a, a few brass instruments, but uh, very cool that the layer of orchestration that's going on there. Perfect in the mix, a little bit subtle. And yeah, it's a beautiful little ditty, you know, and it's just a couple minutes long. And I, I think it's strong. I, I think it's <laughs> the fact that the other guys were getting annoyed by these little Paulisms are that shows you how fractured things were becoming with the band because most people would listen to this and say, Oh, it's really nice, you know, but obviously a little selfishness was taking over within the group, including with Paul, obviously, because he didn't want anyone else touching these songs. But I, I really like it. I've always enjoyed it. I think it's got nice atmosphere and the orchestrations give it uh, a little enhancement that's very, that's a little bit different. Well, I think of like for no one on Revolver and, and, you know, some of these moments where, Paul did kind of step in and bring things down a little bit. And actually in the white album with it being so eccentric and bringing such variety, I, I think for the listener and for a lot of Beatles fans, it was probably very welcomed to sort of get those moments where Paul kind of maybe expectedly, um, but nonetheless, you know, brought in a great song that kind of, you know, calmed you down a little bit. Cause there's a lot of rowdy moments. And uh, speaking of here's a great rowdy moment on the white album excited to hear what you think of this one everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey dude you you know what i think about every time i hear this right Oh man, I sure hope you're going to mention it. Go ahead. Of course, ahead. I'm going to mention it. Our Tascam Fortrek <laughs> mixer and your <laughs> your incredible oh god cover of this. <laughs> so yeah, one of the first four track adventures for for me certainly. There was another one that we that we talked about on another episode. I forgot what song it was. Uh, I also did Taxman. Yeah, I did Taxman. You did Taxman, but equally was, as, as horrendous. Uh, it was another okay. episode. I can't recall, but you had talked about that you did a cover, and and as you were, you learned how to use the four track before I did. You actually understood how to use it before I did. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't say so. <laughs> and I've never seen. I even now I'm 41. I'm really bad, really bad at like reading instruction manuals. So I just kind of like do it and then like screw it up and then learn. That's kind of my, my way about it. And even, even at, you know, whatever it was, age 12, um, I kind of like learned on the fly, which was probably a mistake. And obviously you could hear how much of a mistake it was by my version of this. For our listeners, if you can just imagine, and T was probably, you know, 12 when we did this, maybe something like that, 13, but he nailed like the the main melody of the vocals and his vocal performance is actually pretty good. He kind of nailed it and musically it was close enough, but <laughs> the biggest you're being, thing I you're remember, being way too kind here. Way well, too kind. The biggest thing I remember was just the absolute train wreck. That was the cowbell. <laughs> well, I used the rot, the bell on the ride, the bell on the ride. Yeah. 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 And it was just like, like, just, it's so messy and so amazing. Just and, a disaster. Uh, I mean, it was a disaster, but it was kind of hilarious too. So, so yeah, I, I, I would do anything to dig up those. Tapes, I know. I know? wish we had that tape. But, so I, I did uh tax man, which was pretty bad. And then I did, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey, which was horrendous, but pretty funny. Cause yeah, I was just beating on the, the, the bell on the ride symbol and then doing some dumb, you know, improvised inaccurate 
thing on the bass and then i just put a vocal over him it was so stupid but but kind of amazing at the same time uh you know the, the unique sound here uh, it actually comes from the track being a little bit sped up so they did a slower recording and then decided they wanted this to be a little bit more upbeat and they actually accelerate the track and you can hear that a little bit in sort of the way that it comes off on tape weird song i mean uh you know this is all john obviously and you know his take on it was that this was sort of an expression of like hey everybody cool out about yoko you know i'm i understand that there's tenseness about yoko but you know screw all of you because you know it's all about just me and my monkey which a lot of people thought maybe he was talking about heroin he and yoko were pretty avid heroin users at this time and the rest of the band didn't really think that was very cool but you know this was kind of john doing his sort of tunnel vision thing of uh leave me and yoko alone and you know and, and it was done in kind of this goofy way i don't know if it's a song i mean can you take this song terribly seriously i mean it's got some interesting uh offbeat you know i mean that guitar intro is offbeat and you realize that as things sort of kick in almost kind of a reggae beat type thing to it so i mean it's it's interesting it's fun uh it's a great it's very wide album as we said a few times last episode but uh i don't know can you take this one seriously certainly at, at moments where there's some great musicality i mean if you take away kind of the hilarious name by the way i always thought my monkey was a an innuendo for his uh you know his ding dong manhood yeah which we which we all uh you know unfortunately have seen quite a bit of <laughs> yeah <laughs> very true yeah exactly but yeah. i uh, until very recently i thought that was what he was referring to but uh, you know when they go into that do 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 bum 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 that's very musical, and the middle section is undoubtedly cool, right? So there's some really interesting things going on here. It, it's a little bit clouded by kind of a ridiculous theme, but again, I do like the no rules. John is just letting it fly as he does for the most part on both discs of uh, the White Album. So you got to respect that, you know. But uh, yeah. It, Borderlines on the ridiculous, but the serious, the moments to be taken seriously are some of the musical intricacies that are going on rhythmically are kind of fun and, and kind of interesting to listen to. Well, he and Yoko just, they loved being naked, didn't they? They were just big fans of running around without any clothes on, you know? Yeah, they, they really were. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, many would say that that wasn't very sexy, but you know what was sexy? Sexy Sadie. Sadie. Get yours yet. However big you think you are. However big you think you are. This song, uh, much like many others on the White Album, was uh, written with the Maharishi in mind. So this was written in, in, in India. The working title was Maharishi. Then I guess he didn't want to like go that far, so he swapped that out for "Sexy Sadie" and put this kind of, you know, more kind of American style, uh, you know, rock and roll singing about a sexy gal twist on it. I think it's okay. You know, it's kind of one of those um, this two songs that probably could have been a throwaway if you were to do a White Album draft. But you know, there's there's some influences coming through here with some of the background vocals and some of the sort of style around it. Uh, still a little bluesy, a little draggy, but not my favorite. It's probably one of his more focused compositions, though. 
on the album, I would say. You know, it's got a defined kind of start and verse and chorus deal. And I, I do like the structure of it. It's got some nice movements. It's got a mood that you can enjoy. You know, it's a little bit somber, a little bit serious, but also with sort of a little hopeful chorus to it. I, you know, it, it's not in the uh, upper echelon, but again, it's one of the many contributions that make this album so intriguing from top to bottom. Well, we go from a track that, you know, I agree had some simplicity to it and some, you know, kind of structure and some discipline to it, I would say, to a song that's uh, pretty wild. And this one obviously has been studied for many reasons. Um, it, the development of this, which was all Paul, this is one of those all Paul songs and, and great performances by the band. So definitely um, a performance collaboration, but from the standpoint of composition and development, it's a McCartney jam and it's Helter Skelter. Shout out to Jess King on the Peloton. Hey, buddy. Huh? That, that Absolutely. Class, that classic rock ride, huh? You got it. A little helter-skelter in there. Yeah, Nubs, Nubs got me Pelotoning here uh, recently, which I quite appreciate. It's a... Uh, Don't you feel good? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm taking some of that COVID, those COVID lubs off. It's good stuff. This is noted by many as one of the first heavy metal songs it's a furious jam by the band. I mean, and, and, and it's very raw and that's part of what people really like about it. The drum sound, the crash ride. I mean, Ringo's really going after it here uh, in a way that many drummers weren't at the time. I mean, it was a little bit inspired, not by the song, but by some commentary in an interview that Pete Townsend had done about I Can See For Miles, which is a fantastic Who song. And Townsend said, you know, this is a blistering track and we're just really letting it all fly here. And Paul listened to it, you know, sort of with bated breath, kind of thinking, wow, this thing's going to blow my head off. And he said, well, that's a great song and it's definitely jamming, but you know, it's, um, it's a little bit more tame than I thought. Not as blistering as Townsend led me to believe. So, you know what, I'm going to go outdo him. And that was kind of the inspiration for Paul kind of hearing that and thinking I can go harder than that. I can go you know, more kind of wild than that. And, and he did. And I love the way it's recorded, love the way it's performed. In a way, it's, it's kind of a statement from Paul to my earlier point during Mother Nature's Son, you know, Paul wanted to show the ability that he could rock at times. And it shows you a little bit, as we've seen from McCartney, even in later, later years, Paul's a little bit rabbit ears as far as critics and those things. I think he's been very reactive in his career of saying, oh, you don't think I can do that? Well, let me show you. Whether that's some crazy avant-garde thing, whether that's continuing to be relevant, whether that's jamming with the guys from Nirvana, he, he has this need to be relevant and this need in a lot of ways to please. you know. And I think you've seen that in his, some of his response to critics and some of his response to kind of some of the various moves within his career. And it's kind of funny that one of his most famous Beatles contributions really came from, in a lot of ways, wanting to show people, hey, I can jam. John's not the only rock and roll guy here. 
And I think for the most part, it worked, even though the development of it can be seen by some as a little bit contrived, maybe a little bit calculated, which Paul showed many times he had the ability to do. I actually think Helter Skelter kind of works. So what do you think, Nubs? Do you think this deserves a lot of the praise and notoriety it gets as kind of uh, an early metal type jam? Oh, hell yes. Who did anything like this before? Name me one song that was this heavy. And, and you mentioned the who, I mean, okay, but that did not have kind of the robust, like low end that Helter Skelter has Ringo's drumming. Who was playing like that with that groove? Don't say Keith Moon. Okay. Cause Keith Moon had no groove, right? He was just like Mr. Fast hands. Keith Moon couldn't keep a beat, you know, exactly. <laughs> and, and Ringo kept a beat better than any drummer in the world at his time. And so this song is heavy metal. I mean, it is. There's no doubt about it. Name me a song that came before it that was heavier, that was more blistering, and that had kind of the edge that Helter Skelter has. Plus, Paul is singing from the gut, which is very cool as well. You know, that, that adds something to it. I love Paul's bass work, too. The octave stuff. I mean, that, I mean what a hell of a bass player Paul McCartney is. But uh, absolutely, it deserves it, man. This is an all-out, balls-to-the-wall Jamie jam jam. Gotta love it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, apparently, there was like chaos in the studio. You can hear uh, Ringo yell toward the end of the song. He yells, I've got blisters on my fingers because apparently this was part of a long jam and he was, you know, obviously playing his ass off. And then George uh, apparently set an ashtray on fire and was running around with it on top of his head. It was one of these like legendary, hilarious moments where just the entire band was going wild and you can hear that a bit in the performance uh and then it's very white album we go from george lighting an ashtray on fire and carrying it around his head to a very spiritual rather mellow george tune and we hear him for the first time on disc two with long 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 was really interesting that um and it's not terribly surprising but the band and george in particular were huge fans of the band you know coming out of canada at that time and this was the same year earlier this year that music from the big pink came out and apparently that really inspired this song musically from george a lot of you know george fans and george supporters uh really love long 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 they think it's some of his best work Uh, John didn't play a thing on it. So again, you're seeing a lot of these songs start to act a lot more like solo efforts uh, rather than the band being collaborative. We had already seen uh, George be become rather spiritual in a lot of his music. And he was obviously digging into sitar and those type of things, which we saw as early as Revolver. Uh, but this one gets you more in kind of a mellow phase. This is a lot like some of the stuff you saw from George as his solo career sort of matured and progressed. Um, it's, you know, it's a little dreary. It's, you know, again, it's, I don't think it's a strong point within the White Album, but, you know, George's contributions, um, you know, as a whole, you know, when you look at Guitar Gently Weeps and Piggies, which sort of preceded this, if nothing else, Nubs, he offers variety, right? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And he always offers atmosphere. This sounds a little bit like something that 
could have been on all things must pass, you know, to that idea of the solo thing. And he, he was growing so much as a songwriter. And this is not one of my favorite George songs by the Beatles, but as a person who really celebrates his contributions, I still really like elements of it. Most of all, it'll be kind of the spaciness of it. I think George was at his best when he was creating some of that psychedelic kind of feel along with his, you know, really thoughtful and, and emotionally driven songs. You know, the one thing you have to, you have to give George over Lennon and McCartney for sure is his songs always had a lot of emotion in them. And you can't say that about Paul and John and look no further than what we've been through so far on this album to know that they both explored genres. Whereas George just explored feelings and emotions and things like that. And that always came through. His stuff is so authentic. So not one of my top five favorite George songs, but still very, very much worth your time. If you're going to celebrate as everyone should George's contributions to the Beatles. Would you say that you celebrate the guy's entire catalog? I mean, is that fair to say? (laughs) I'm a, I'm a Michael Bolton fan. (laughs) I mean, you must really love his music, you know, having the same name and all. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tell me, what's your favorite song? I uh, guess I kind of like them all. I'm the same way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, here's another selection from the catalog, more of a John catalog number here in uh, Revolution Uno. So obviously, you know, there are, I suppose, two versions of this. Um, The uh, previous version, I think it was, was released as a single, and that's the more upbeat, more famous, more renowned version of Revolution, which has that kind of more upbeat sort of swing groove to it. That one. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um which I, I mean, I think most people prefer that to one. Um, it's interesting that they would put this on there. I mean, this, this was a different time, you know, singles and album cuts were really separate from one another, you know, and, and you could make a lot of money off singles. You could obviously make a lot of money off LPs. You saw a lot of intentional single releases. In fact, there's this song that, you know, could have been on the white album and it was recording during the sessions nubs. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it called Hey Jude, um, which could have been on the white album, but they instead released it as a single and same thing with uh, revolution, the more famous upbeat version. So, you know, a couple songs there that maybe some people nowadays wonder, geez, why didn't you take out, you know, X and Y and Z and, and plug in Hey Jude and plug in the uh, other version of revolution. Cause that would have made this album even better, but obviously that wasn't, really the way it worked at that time from a business standpoint. And clearly it wasn't what the Beatles wanted to do creatively. So I'm not a huge fan of revolution one. I think it's, you know, once you compare it to the other, it kind of just makes me want to hear the other one, which I don't, I don't love, but I'm certainly a fan of, I think it's an important Beatles track. So what do you think of revolution one nub? Uh, can't stand it. I find the shooby doo wop and all that crap. very distracting. And as a kid, when I was getting into this album, it just blew my mind in a negative way of like, why did they do this? You know, as a kid, you kind of take everything more literally. And for me, it was just like, 
why would they put this crappy version of that song on here when there's that yeah. really cool version that's not on here? Right, right. I kind of understand the Hey Jude is a single thing. And I understand like the double A side with Revolution, but still, you know, why why would you do this? It it's a little bit like like that don't cry redo thing. Right. I mean, it, it's a little bit, <laughs> right. why would you take this amazing work and try and redo it in some way? Or it's just excessive and odd decision-making, but you know, odd decision-making is, is not that uncommon when you're looking at this later phase of the Beatles for sure. Well, I wish I could say the, what the F were you thinking ends there, but a lot of people had that as well for the next track, which is a Paul song called honey pie. So again, I, I don't know if this is just, you know, uh, Paul trying to be cute or trying to make sure that every single genre, including apparently a, a 1920s style, uh, you know, sort of catchy tune um, was necessary and demonstrating that they could do whatever the hell they wanted on the White Album. I and mean, I'm, I'm sure all these things kind of factor in in a way. Um, but, you know, it's it's a little bit of a hmm, did we really need to do that? Um, could that have been a B side, you know? So I, I think it's kind of another heat check moment of, Hey, what if we threw something like this in there? <laughs> you know, would it, would it still be received? And, you know, clearly all these things were John hated it, which is not terribly surprising. So it seems like this is one of those things that maybe Paul kind of wanted to do. And I'm not sure if he really loved this genre and wanted to put a, uh, I mean, some of the things George Martin does to it are actually kind of cool. And sort of putting it in that context and in that sort of era. Um, but all in all, you know, I think most people kind of thought, you know, hmm, did we really need to do this? You know, I almost, I like wild honey pie, I think better. I was just about to ask you better. exact question. <laughs> honey pie, better than, yeah. yeah. I have a soft spot for honey pie and I'll tell you why. Because my favorite Wings album, Far and Away, and one of my favorite albums of all time is Venus and Mars Are All Right Tonight. And I love the succession of that record. I think it's just Paul at his absolute best with wings. And on there, there's a song called You Gave Me the Answer, which is one of these little ditties. It's 20s inspired. And it's very, very charming. And it comes in a great sequence in the album. And I love it. And so this is sort of the prequel to that. And so, you know, yeah, I, Paul did continue to explore this sort of ditty thing that was so inspired by way, way back in the day. It sounds like it should be coming out of one of those, you know, like phonogram record players, you know, with the single speaker that pops out. So I soft spot for it in that way. Uh, so again, bias always coming through and that's my bias with this song. So, yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad because, uh, you know, I mean, I just think it's kind of a goofy throwaway, but that that's interesting. Um, and, and, and a nice take and I'm glad you like it, buddy. You know, I'm glad it gives you some good vibes, you know, but I still might like honey pie better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why, why honey pie? I just, I don't, I don't like it. I don't know. It rules. Oh, yeah. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. It kind of rules. I'm glad it's only a minute long, but it totally rules. And uh, let's see what you think. So, so we always have, uh, at least I always have these tracks that I'm really looking forward to your take on. And this is, uh, this is George uh, once again, uh, signing off with his last contribution here to the white album with uh, a very interesting track savoy truffle <laughs> 
Now, here's what I, I want to I want to get your take first. But obviously, you know, Eric Clapton played on "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" on disc one, and this is sort of an ode to Clapton. I mean, George is basically writing a song about his pal. Um, I guess you know Eric Clapton loved candy or something, and this is kind of a joke that they had or a bit that they had about a particular truffle, you know, that appeared in um, one of these boxes of candy that apparently Eric Clapton like. So it's kind of like he's giving a little nod to his pal, you know, doing a little inside joke. Uh, and that's the connection of why he's singing about uh, candy. By the way, um, is there a stranger relationship in history, not music history, history than George Harrison and Eric Clapton? I mean, the dude stole the dude's wife yeah. and they continued being like best friends. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's yeah. just, it's amazing. It, <laughs> the, the heart that George Harrison must have had is, is a lot bigger than many because it's, it's a remarkable story of friendship and loyalty and, you know, stealing a guy's wife and enjoying candy <laughs> together and all that stuff. Well, these were the swinging sixties, baby. You know, it's uh yes, sir. Um, it, but I, you know, I think, I think there is kind of a theme to what you're saying that the, the musical respect and the musical connection between these guys kind of like, you know, trumped everything else, including you know, banging the other guy's wife. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a, a relationship strengthened, I think, by mutual respect and mutual sort of musical love for each other. But uh, yeah, a little bit of an interesting friendship. What do you think of the song, buddy? Oh, huge fan. Easily one of my favorite Beatles songs. I love the groove of it. Again, I think Ringo's carrying something here that is worthy of a toe tap and a head nod. And it's a fun song. And I love the electric piano, which I know Chris Thomas, the, the famous producer who worked with the Beatles played. Yeah. That really keeps the song moving. It's a great George composition. It's got, you know, nice rhythm, cool melody. I, I just love it. I love Savoy Truffle. I had no idea what it was about. So that's interesting to learn about as well. But yeah, not only one of my favorites on the White Album, but one of my favorites in the whole Beatles catalog. Yeah. The thing I love about it, and I agree, Nub, is, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of George's sitar work, but this shows him and, you know, there was a little bit of kind of experimentation on piggies and while my guitar gently was, was a lot more of a sort of an epic kind of a slow, you know, deal and long, long, long was kind of more of this atmospheric. This is to me, this is George kind of just getting back to basics. You know, it's kind of like, I'm going to get the guitar out. I'm going to write this rocker. I'm going to write a song that doesn't have to be mystical and spiritual and atmospheric. It can just be kind of about something fun, you know, tied to one of my pals. I, I think it's, I think it's George having a good time. And I think it's important because while my guitar gently weeps is so intense emotionally and musically, his other songs are kind of experimental. And then just as you get toward the close here of disc two, having George kind of roll out this fun, you know, lighthearted rocker. Um, I really dig. I really dig. And, and you see a lyrical technique here, which the Beatles um, did often where you mention a previous uh, line or, or song title. Cause George mentions, Oh, blah, deal, blah, da in this song. And that was kind of a cool sort of callback technique that you heard a lot as the Beatles progress later. They started to sometimes reference some of their previous work or, or even poke a little bit of fun at something they had done in the early days. In this case, he's referencing a song that's 
on the previous disc, you know, so kind of interesting, something you didn't really see that often. I, and I love those tight horns. That is such a white album thing for my ears. You know, just those really tightly produced horn arrangements, you know, do, 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 do. It adds a real funky kind of element to the song. And, and again, new stuff, new sounds, new explorations, even for old George there. So it's a great point. It's a great point because at that time you really weren't seeing that combination a lot. And, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire and some of these groups that would come on in the early 70s really started getting a lot of credit um, for kind of this mix of horns and rock or horns and pop and that sort of thing in Chicago, obviously, and other. But this is a very early example of how to incorporate, you know, tight that tight horn sound into more of a straightforward rock and roll song. So great point. I agree with you. That's a, one of the other cool, innovative things about a, a great George Harrison song and his final contribution to the White Album. So we got three left. Getting toward the end here, buddy. And we strip it down for John with Cry Baby Cry. I think it's a stellar moment on the White Album, and I love the back-to-back. I mean, I think Savoy Truffle and Cry Baby Cry may present the best, uh, you know, one-two punch on the entire effort. And I kind of wish they would have just ended it there, (laughs) as I'm sure many others do. But man, the sort of rowdy nature of Truffle and then this stripped down, I think this is John kind of at his best. George Martin performs on the harmonium too, which provides a great layer for this song. But this is one of those moments where it's just like, God, John was good, you know? And as annoying as he can be, we mentioned it earlier, as complex as he could be to try and figure out. And as many times as he tried to make his music go too much in a messaging or political or theatrical direction. Man, there were moments here in the late 60s and plenty of them where you just kind of realize, damn, was John Lennon good. And for me, Cry Baby Cry is one of those. What do you think of that one as we're getting toward the end here, Nub? I love it because it's John kind of showing off his piano capabilities. I was never a big fan of John as a guitarist. He's sort of a crappy guitarist, you know, but I really like when the piano paces some of his work, some of his songs. And I agree with you. I think it's a high point of the album. I never thought of it in terms of its succession after Savoy Truffle, but that you're right. It provides a nice balance there. And I do think it's John at his best. So yeah, big fan of cry, baby cry. And just like use your illusion too, we're making a lot of references to that. <laughs> Can we just end the album there? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I remember, I remember you going, well, that's it. And uh, I don't want to steal your joke. I'm kind of, you know, inclined to right now, but uh well, let, let's just let's just get to this. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. All right. So I don't know how long you want to. <laughs> we could we could probably talk about this for two hours. Um, clearly, this was a very Yoko influenced um, track. 
you know, George actually put his myths on this one a lot. George was kind of into a lot of this avant-garde. Um, there's some kind of almost electronic, like sort of some of that German synth stuff that was beginning at this time. There are a little bit of those elements that come into play on it. There is a faction of Beatles fans that enjoy Yoko's work and and kind of thought it was neat and interesting that they dug into avant-garde. But I mean, listen, Revolution 9 is, for most Beatles fans, a a very rare shake-your-head moment where it's just kind of like, why? You know, why do you got to plug that onto, and it's nine minutes long. I mean, why you got to plug that onto something that I know the intention was to be very thorough and very variety based and show their range. But, you know, I, I'm in the camp of they went too far with this one. And I understand why the band let this happen. I don't know why they allowed it to be nine minutes of this. Um, and Hey, maybe I'm just not artistic or, uh, have enough avant-garde appreciation to uh, understand it, but pretty excessive, pretty much a many would consider the low point for the band. Wish they wouldn't have done it. I don't know. Do you see it as uh, interesting and, you know, yet another, uh, you know, sort of complicated, uh, fascinating element of the white album, or do you see this just as a pile of crap that you wish wasn't on there? Uh, neither. And, and I'll challenge your view on this only be, and I have to be very self-conscious about this too, because I, I don't want to sound like a, uh, like an elitist music listener or anything like that. Okay. I please don't say, Oh, nubs is, you know, is being like, uh, oh, I'm gonna, guy. I'm, no, I'm going to say, it. <laughs> I'm going to say it. If you look at what was going on at the time and some of the like I have I have albums from uh, Stockhausen, John Cage, Steve Reich, to an extent Brian Eno, but much later doing it a little bit differently. Philip Glass, these guys are, you know, gods of the avant garde, and they did it through repetition. They did it through using the studio as an instrument. They did it through tape loops. They did it through all this technology that now doesn't feel like technology, but at the time was a big deal. And they were creating, it's not a song, you know, revolution nine is like, it's not a song that you put on and tap your toe to. Right. But it's an experiment. They were able to do it just like these other guys were. And for that, I really respect it. Now, do I want to listen to it five times a day? I do not. Do I skip over it when I listen to the album? I do not. It's part of the picture. It's part of the whole puzzle that the band was putting together with this whole thing. And it's very influenced by these really, really important figures in sound, not in rock music, but in sound. And that's cool. That's cool that they had their finger on that pulse and that they were able to let themselves make an attempt at a repetitive sort of sound, you know, collage puzzle sort of deal that they were trying to piece together. And so I'm into it symbolically. I can fully understand why one would not listen to it. I get it. I can understand your take, but it's an homage, I think, to some of these really important figures that clearly had an impact on many musicians, most notably Sirs Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison. So 
I'm into it, man. Yeah, you know, I appreciate the take. And, and listen, you're not the only one who places some importance on this. And there is context to some of the experimentation going on at the time, et cetera. And, and I'm all for a lot of this proggy, experimental, technical, weird, avant-garde stuff that was going on around that time, certainly. The problem I have with Revolution, I just don't think it's very good. You know, I just, I don't really understand the direction. I don't understand the theme. Typically with an art piece like this, you at least want to come away with it feeling like you have an understanding of what was implied or what was trying to get across. And I just always have a hard time with that on, on Revolution 9. I think that there was more noise than there was artistic direction. And I guess that's the issue I've kind of always had with it. But we'll just have to leave it there because we could probably do a whole freaking episode about Revolution number 9, couldn't we, buddy? Let's close it up with a John Lennon tune where Ringo steps up to the mic, which is very cool as far as closing an album with a Ringo vocal here on Good Night. And that is how the White Album ends. Now, part of what's... I'm not a huge fan of Good Night. Again, I think John was being intentionally dramatic, wanted this very swirly, sweeping strings. I almost think that it's a little bit of a goof. I don't think it's like a serious, like John was trying to intentionally be dramatic or beautiful. I actually think he was, by having Ringo sing it and putting strings around it. I actually think he was doing some tongue in cheek here. Um, Nubs, I'm not sure if you hear it that way, but um, cool that Ringo sings the last song. Um, Cool that he wrote this for Julian. It's like the only nice thing he ever did for Julian Lennon. Um, (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) And you and I are big Julian Lennon fans. So, um, so I think that's kind of neat, but Hey, I don't know. It's a theatric kind of interesting sort of odd way to close things out but how else would you close out the white album other than something like this and ringo's vocals are the only contribution from one of the four members of the beatles on the whole song so yeah that's right you know that's right definitely a peculiar closer but like you said man what else would you expect so nubs two discs two parts to the episode 30 songs isn't that the same amount of songs that User Illusion 1 and 2 had? A lot of parallels here we're finding as we talk through this. Um, Nubs, did the White Album matter? It surely did. Yeah, not, not much more to say about it. I mean, it exposed mainstream audience to a lot of things that weren't mainstream. It exposed some avant-garde, a lot of things that weren't avant-garde, and did a lot of things in between. So certainly mattered. I, I think it's probably the Beatles most influential album, maybe aside from Sgt. Pepper, but the influence of this album probably outlasts and outweighs its actual quality. And for that, you have to, uh, you have to recognize, and uh, we're all inspired and influenced by the white album for sure. No doubt about it. And by, by we, I mean all musicians and all music lovers. So what do you think T you think it mattered? Of course it mattered, Nubbles. I mean, listen, I talked about it a little bit in part one, but this, in a lot of ways, changed the way albums were packaged, changed the way track listings were viewed, changed the way 
that an arc or a direction or lack thereof in this case of an album can be presented. A lot of heat checks, a lot of carblage, um, which is kind of what's cool about it. You know, I, I, I see the white album is almost like this variety show, you know, where you're kind of taken in so many different twists and turns. And it's funny, that was kind of the idea behind Sergeant Pepper was that the sort of intra theme was that you were being kind of taken through this show and sort of on this artistic ride in this sort of variety sense being hosted by Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But I almost feel like the White Album is actually more of a um, sort of variety show than uh, than its predecessor in that way. So um, it's incredibly interesting. Um, of course, there are moments where if you trimmed it down to a single album, to your point about user illusion, double album syndrome, those type of things, where you could have had an absolute masterpiece, but that's not what they wanted. That's not what they cared about. And to show that and to put so many elements and put so many moments on the record that kind of proved what the Beatles were able to sort of get away with at this time and to, you know, make a true kind of artistic, very bold statement, I think is more important than even the sum of its parts and the sum of its 30 songs. So very, very important nubs. Let's do with a final cut on this one, baby. What do you got? We got, we got on the turntable. We got in the collection. We got collecting dust. And then we've got in the first sale bin. Are you going to put the Beatles in the first sale bin? Hmm, that'd be kind of peculiar. What do you got, buddy? That'd be more than peculiar. That would just be uh, wrong, right? I'm going to say that the White Album is without question in the collection. If you don't own it, there's something wrong. If you listen to it top to bottom regularly, there's something wrong, right? Because who would really want to hear some of these things all the time? <laughs> right. So in the collection, solidly, it's a classic, no doubt about it. See, what do you got for the final cut? Honestly, on the, on the, on the album, I, I've got to go with collecting dust. And the only reason is because to go top to bottom on it is a little bit of a chore. Um, you've got to own it. <laughs> you've got to appreciate it. You've got to dig into it. I think last episode, I think I put it fourth or fifth on my, you know, Beatles album list. So that's not to take away from its importance or, or even my preference for it. But as far as, you know, pulling it out and going top to bottom of it, I mean, goodness, I, to me anymore, uh, these days, that's a long sit. That's a bit of a wood chop. So I'm actually going to go collecting dust, but that does not take away whatsoever from my love and appreciation for this very special double album. All right, nubbies, I got one more thing up my sleeve today. We're going to do a special in your head. Dolores, kick us off. Let's go. Come on. What do you say? All right, here's what we're going to do. If you're down for it, buddy, instead of just doing the standard in your head, let's give our top five favorite Beatles songs of all time. What do you say, buddy? I like it. I like Actually, it. I, I think we're going to go with 10 because I mean, five is basically impossible. We're going to go five honorable mentions. We can just give that from the get go and then we'll go back and forth on our top five. And that'll be our in your head for episode 49. What do you think, buddy? Are you down with that? Give us your five honorable mentions. Go for it. All right. My five honorable mentions are. A Day in the Life, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Hello Goodbye, We Can Work It Out, and For No One. Those are my, yeah, those are my five honorable mentions. Boy, you, it's still mysterious to me how you had Revolver as your fifth 
favorite album. Especially <laughs> I know. After you just put for no one in your top in your honorable mentions, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. I've got uh, one of the ones we just heard uh, a few minutes ago. Cry, baby, cry. I've got all you need is love. I've got hey Jude. I've got she said she said a great Ringo moment, and nowhere man. So those are our, our honorable mentions. Okay, let's get into the top five nubs. What's number five on your list? Number five for me is going to be a rather appropriate song right now since it's pouring rain outside, which is Here Comes the Sun. Great George Harrison song. All right, team, numero five for you. What do you got? Well, I guess it is pouring rain, so I'll stick with the rain theme, but I'm going with the song Rain. This was a B-side. This did not appear on a Beatles album, but boy, maybe Ringo's best moment, drumming. It's a very Revolver era song. It's an amazing Beatles song. It's it's great, John. Amazing drumming performance. Many say that it was Ringo's best. And I uh, kind of wish it was on the Revolver album. It would have made it even better. But man, Rain is a brilliant Beatles song from my vantage point. Nubs, what do you got next? Same album, same songwriter. I am going with something for my number four. T, what's your number four? I'm going to go Sergeant Pepper here, and it's being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. I just really? freaking, wow. oh my God, I just freaking love this song. I think John is such a badass during this song. We talked earlier, like John has moments where he drives you crazy, and then he just had moments during this era where it was like, oh my God, this dude's phenomenal. I love Mr. Kite. I think it's a, a great moment in the sort of that middle stage of uh, Sergeant Pepper's, and it's a top fiver for me. Nubs, what's next on your list, buddy? So I, I was trying to avoid white album tracks because we've spent so much time looking at it, but I can't avoid Dear Prudence. Again, sticking with John at his best. It is Dear Prudence without question. So that is my number three. T, what's your number three? Nubs, number three for me is Dear Prudence. Really? You like that as much? I didn't realize you liked that as much as I did. That's cool. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, great choice. Um, yeah, that's a special moment on the white album. And again, a special moment for Mr. Lennon. Nubs, two left. What do you got? Well, just part of what they called the medley, but I think most would, would say this will pass as one song. So I'm going with number two, Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight, and The End from Abbey Road. Let me check with the judges real quick. Oh, they say no. No can do. I'm just kidding. Fine. <laughs> You're good. You're good. You're good. Yeah, that's a, a, a wonderful trilogy. My uh, second to last so therefore fourth choice is a george sitar moment on revolver that i just absolutely think is spectacular and that's love you too uh oh yeah incredible moment on revolver george's best sitar song by far george's best contribution except for maybe while my gently weeps which is definitely amazing um but love you too is my fourth pick nubs you got one more what is it my number one is Let It Be. Just one of the best songs ever written, ever created. But make sure it's the version off the album with the full on Phil Spector production. That version on Let It Be Naked was boring. So I uh, let it be to me. I just think it's one of the greatest of all time. T, what tops your list? Let It Be is an incredible song, but I, I got to say, you make a great point. I think that. It probably should be in my honorable mention, but the reason it's not in my top five is because I do think that it's a beautiful, wonderful song, but the production is what makes it spectacular. So, you know, uh, and that's good. Hey, that's, it's all, it all rolls into kind of what makes it amazing. Um, 
and uh, and it's a fabulous choice. It's an absolutely incredible Beatles song and a brilliant piece of production from Mr. Phil Spector, who I think is in jail. I'm not mistaken, right? I mean, I think he's dead now, isn't he? he? He's either in jail or dead. Either way, he's not having fun. It's funny. Typically, when you, you know, typically when you commit murder, you uh, end up in jail. So it's just kind of one of those things. But he did produce a hell of a song uh, during his heyday. My fifth choice, Nubs, is I'm going to go back to a little bit of an earlier stage here is Help. And uh, again, I think Help's a critical song um, in the Beatles catalog, a real turning point lyrically. Um, from the standpoint of showing that you can be a little bit more melancholy, the minor major shifts in the song are just genius from a progression standpoint. And I think that the song help is incredible. So that's it. That's the white album. We did it. Well, we did it. And, uh, nubs, any final words before you go, uh, start your weekend. And I would imagine you grab another freshy white claw out of the fridge. A white claw after the white album. Huh? Right? Uh, how about that? Yeah. Right? None more white. There's just none more white. There really isn't. There really isn't. Nubs, thank you for driving the ship in part one. And I uh, hope you all enjoyed part two. And a nice yes. job to you driving the ship for part two, too. Well, thank you, buddy. I'll tell you what. It's, it's, it's a bit of a grind getting through these, uh, these two uh, discs, but incredibly important a real joy to uh, revisit start to finish and listen that's episode 49 you know what that means that means that the next one is what is it is it your silver anniversary is that that's 50? gold now 50 is your gold gold so does this mean our golden episode yes it does q a yeah we're gonna we're gonna have a little fun um with our 50th episode but for now Episode 49 is a wrap for this moderately medium, somewhat important band. And we'll wrap it up there and we will see you next week for the aforementioned episode 50 here on Two Twins and an album. Two Twins and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.